0: Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this two guys, Brandon Phibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing.
1: How do you, f- how do you feel about that? Perfect. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that works, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer. I'm Kyle
2: Sullivan. I'm Brandon Phibbs. Uh, first, a little bit about us. Brandon, tell us who you are. Well, I, uh, I'm the first to admit that I have a rather eclectic resume. Uh, my office used to be the cockpit of an S3 Viking when I was in the Navy. Uh, I've worked for Congress. I spent several years as a public relations shark and several more as a professional film critic. And these days I find myself in Los Angeles where I'm a television producer. And I've worked on such shows as Cosmos of Space-Time Odyssey the story of God with Morgan Freeman and through the wormhole with Morgan Freeman.
1: That's an impressive resume actually. Are are you currently working on anything at the moment that you can talk about?
2: I am currently working for a company as a development producer, which basically means I come up with ideas for new shows. Nice. Okay. Um,
1: My resume is a lot less impressive. I also kind of work in video and film production. Um, I have done a number of different things, commercial stuff mostly. Uh, I goof off a lot on YouTube, and probably anyone listening to this might know me from uh, a YouTube channel called Trexpertise primarily, and that's basically me, I think. I think we should go ahead and jump into the, uh, to the thing here. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's tough to start at the beginning, when the beginning can be anything. I mean, how does one select a topic from the whole of the universe and existence? So I did what I normally do when I encounter a new bookstore. And I always do this when I go to a new bookstore. Uh, I headed to a section that I already know. In this case, I'm starting with the Spanish exploration of the southwest of the United States. Specifically, I'm starting with a map of the old Spanish empire and randomly selecting an administrative unit or province within the modern borders of the United States. In this case, I landed in Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico. Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico. uh, Which translates to Holy Faith of New Mexico. And uh, I just want to apologize for how bad my Spanish pronunciations are. I technically know how the language works, uh, but I sound like a child when I talk. I have a particular thirst for understanding the pre-Columbian Western Hemisphere. And inside that topic is the contact period. Uh, this moment of time when these small Western European nations began to form and then wash up on the shores of this massive American cultural universe. Oceo yeah, as eh. oh, hey, cha. And America was a huge, rich cultural tapestry filled with millions of people, cities, states, empires, and religions so different from what we know today that they still make our heads spin. The stories that come out of this time period are nothing short of astonishing. Some of the tales are so preposterous, so crazy, that Hollywood couldn't begin to do justice to it all. But what will I be finding today? I don't know. Let's go down this road and see. So the Nuevo Mexico province got its start as an administrative unit in about 1598 when a guy named Juan de Oñate y Salazar Juan de Oñate y Salazar uh, Oñate for short led an expedition into the deserts of the American Southwest from the Spanish base of Imperial Operations in Central Mexico. Hot, dry sun, dusty landscapes with majestically eroded natural monuments, saguaro cactuses, all kinds of wildlife that would have been relatively new to these invading or encroaching Spanish not to mention a wealth of indigenous people and cultures. This looks to be an exciting slice of history. It was in looking at Onyate's Wikipedia page that I came across my first real interesting tidbit of information. This first part of my wiki surf is all about a kind of pedo-vandalism? Pedo-vandalism? Or foot-vandalism, I guess? Uh, let's take a second to build some context here. Just where are we culturally and where are we in time? This expedition took place about 77 years after the Mexica Empire, who who we now call the Aztecs. Los Aztecas. They fell in 1521 to Hernán Cortés and his combined army of mostly indigenous nations and a kind of handful of Spanish conquistadors. Through Cortés, Spain claimed the capital, Tenochtitlan. México, Tenochtitlan which would later become Mexico City, and began to subsequently conquer and absorb surrounding native cultures, political units, etc. It took 70-plus years for Spain to get around to exploring and absorbing this part of North America, where Nuevo Mexico province is located, roughly modern-day New Mexico and Arizona. That isn't to say that Spaniards hadn't already gotten this far north uh, by this date. They certainly had. For example, Oñate's marching orders were evidence of past Spanish incursions into this part of the modern U.S. His directives included, yes, explore and colonize these unknown lands. But also, he was to capture a Spanish fugitive, Captain Francisco Leva de Bonilla. Francisco Leva de Bonilla. Who apparently was already in the Nuevo Mexico area. I promise this is about a missing foot. But let me take this little side quest to this earlier illegal expedition. Bonilla, along with his partner Antonio Gutierrez de Humana, Antonio Gutierrez de Humana, led an unauthorized expedition consisting of Native Mexicans and Spanish soldiers to the American Great Plains. This action was illegal. It was unsanctioned by Spanish authorities. And Bonilla and his team were wanted men as a result. But it turned out that everyone involved in this illegal expedition died anyway, including Bonilla. Except for a Native Mexican man called Jusepe, Oñate, on his later official expedition, would catch up with Giuseppe in 1599 and get his testimony about this earlier illegal expedition. Bonilla and Humana were, like Hernán Cortés seven decades before them, searching for another great city like Tenochtitlan to capture and plunder, except way up north on the Great Plains. They came across a mysterious, quote, great settlement of some kind, which was probably near Wichita, Kansas. No one really knows where this settlement was or who it actually was. They also saw a multitude of buffalo, a great river which might have been the Missouri River or the Walnut River, and met Apache and Wichita peoples along with the people of a place called Hecos. On this earlier illegal expedition, Bonilla and Umana would end up having a bit of a disagreement. One day, while the expedition was camped somewhere on the Great Plains, Humana wrote some formal letters describing the disagreement between him and Bonilla, and then invited Bonilla into his tent, Hola. where he stabbed him to death with a butcher knife. <coughs> you know, as you do. Humana would then attempt to lead the expedition further. The Native Americans involved in this outing soon deserted, and a little later, everyone died or vanished. Usepe, who spoke
2: Nahuatl,
1: the ruling Aztec language still spoken in Mexico today, ended up as a captive of the Apache for an entire year. He later escaped or was set free and made his way back to Nuevo Mexico province where he gave his testimony to Oñate. Oñate would later employ Husepe as a guide on his official expedition into the Lower Great Plains. This borderland and cultural mixing ground has a lot of fascinating stories like this. The consequences of all these different cultures and societies slamming into each other at a high rate of speed. However, what attracted me to all of this, and specifically to Oñate, is a missing foot. And a promise I'm going to explain. You see, there's a statue of Oñate in Alcalde, New Mexico. And in 1997, somebody cut off that statue's right foot. The foot thing goes back about 400 years to the Acoma Massacre. The Acoma Pueblo people, who have been living in this pueblo of four villages for 800 years now, uh, one of the oldest inhabited places in the United States, they had been wary of the Spanish from day one. In 1540, the Coronado Expedition had threatened them if the Acoma refused Spanish entry into their villages. It was tense, but the Acoma relented. During the intervening years, the Acoma people saw how Spanish treated natives, how they enslaved them to work in silver mines and refused to respect their beliefs. So in 1599, when members of Oñate's official colonization expedition arrived at the Acoma Pueblo and demanded food, the people of Acoma resisted. Violence broke out. Eleven Spanish were killed, including Oñate's nephew. It, It was more complicated than that. Uh, but essentially the Spanish were asking for too much, too hard, and the Acoma people, despite the dismissiveness of the Spaniards, tried to be accommodating but had internal divisions amongst themselves over how to handle the Spaniards. Oñate retaliated by ordering the pueblo destroyed. In the resulting massacre, 800 to 1,000 Acoma died in a military siege. The 500 survivors were put on trial. All men and women older than 12 were sentenced to 20 years of slavery specifically men older than 25, had one foot amputated as punishment.
2: Uh,
1: There were 24 individuals who met with this fate, so that's where the foot thing comes from. An unnamed foot thief claimed the vandalism of Oñate's statue in Alcalde in 1997 He apparently still has the foot, and was interviewed by the New York Times in 2017. I found that to be really surprising. Um, Oñate himself has remained a controversial figure. Native Americans condemn the celebration of his heritage, while Hispanic people are a little more divided. After finalizing the plans for the city of Santa Fe, Oñate himself was recalled to Mexico City for a hearing. He was apparently too mean even for the tastes of the Spanish authorities. He was tried and convicted of cruelty and then banished from Nuevo Mexico for life. He moved to Spain and took a job as a mining inspector manager. Although he was born in Mexico, he died in Spain in 1626. He is sometimes referred to as the last conquistador. It is all this talk about statue vandalism that stirred my curiosity. I mean, on the surface, it is an awfully weird thing to steal just a foot. But in context, it makes some sense. And it calls back to our own popular argument in the United States in regards to Confederate monuments. How do we remember history and celebrate it when the so-called heroes of the age were terrible people even in their own time? And when the consequences of their actions still haunt us? I mean, Spanish authorities at the time, already some rough folks, banned Oñate from the province he helped build. Regardless of the answer, onyate, feet, and cruelty will forever be linked together. But what other weird statue vandalisms have occurred? Are they all politically or culturally motivated? Do they all involve the removal of appendages? I'll come back to this question in a moment, but for now, let's see where Brandon's WikiSurf surf gets started.
2: Okay, so I'm leading off with a topic that was actually inspired by a conversation you and I had about a month or so ago, Kyle. Uh, It was following the season finale of Star Trek Discovery, and full disclosure, everyone, Kyle and I are huge Star Trek fans, like, stupidly so, like, we need medical attention, so... All true. Uh, Remind me of the conversation? So, we were debating whether or not a certain character on the show was actually dead or not, and you sent me a screen grab from the show in which you thought you saw this character's face outlined inside of a shimmering green nebula, and at the time you wondered if the showrunners might be giving us a hint about this character's fate.
1: I remember. Okay. I, I definitely...
2: I I still hold to that theory, but (laughs) clearly you didn't see it that way. I didn't, and and I still don't, but I suggested at the time that you might be suffering from what they call pareidolia.
1: Pareidolia.
2: And that's where I'm going to start today.
1: Pareidolia.
2: Pareidolia, according to Wikipedia, is, quote, a psychological phenomenon in which the mind responds to a stimulus by perceiving a familiar pattern in random data. Okay, uh, break that down a little bit. No problem. So, pareidolia is actually something humans engage in all the time. We see animals in clouds. We think we recognize faces in rock formations. And perhaps most famously, we see a man in the moon. Some good examples of pareidolia are actually really wacky. People claim to have seen Satan's face in the smoke pouring from the World Trade Center on 9-11. They see Mother Teresa on a Cinnabon, or George Washington in a McDonald's chicken nugget. And a couple years ago, here in L.A., J.C. Penney's had to remove a billboard advertising a tea kettle because passing drivers complained that it looked like Adolf Hitler. It turns out we also see a lot of faces in space.
1: (laughs) I told you I saw a face in that nebula. I also saw Charles Darwin's face in an iceberg in Antarctica.
2: But that's a different story. So, But you see, it's really, it's pervasive. It happens to all of us. So going back to my in-space comment, in the mid-1970s, the Viking orbiter spacecraft snapped a grainy image of the surface of Mars that appeared to show a human face looking back at us. This sparked all kinds of talk of advanced civilizations leaving behind giant memorials, and instantly conspiracy theories erupted, charging the government with hiding the existence of intelligent life on Mars. Of course, a couple of decades later, when we sent more spacecraft with better cameras, It turned out the face was nothing more than a play of light and shadow. The result of erosion and wind and other natural forces on the rocks. But you know, religion has made a cottage industry out of pareidolia. They see faces of Jesus in everything from toast to Cheetos, dirty windows, and believe it or not, the rear ends of dogs. More than a decade ago, a Florida woman made a grilled cheese sandwich and discovered the Virgin Mary looking back at her. She sold it on eBay for $28 thousand dollars. Heck, even computers do this. So for decades experts have been trying to come up with computers that can recognize objects within images. This is especially important when it comes to security footage. We need computers to not only be able to ID human faces, but in the case of a possible terrorist, very specific faces. Target acquired. If you've ever uploaded pictures to Facebook, you know their algorithms are actually really good at recognizing who's in a particular photo, but sometimes it doesn't always work false positive occasionally the program gets something wrong and mistakes an inanimate object for a human face this is a potato and that's where you get the surreal hallucinogenic images of Google's deep dream project it uses a neural network basically a a program modeled after the cortical structures of our own brains to find and enhance patterns in images Many of these patterns that Deep Dream sees are dog faces because the software was, for lack of a better word, trained by analyzing lots of animal pictures. And so you have this really trippy stuff like Edvard Munch's The Scream as a dog or the Seattle Space Needle as a giant hedgehog or disembodied eyes that cover the Mona Lisa. It's like a computer acid trip, and some of it is actually really beautiful. It's AI-created art. Pareidolia doesn't just apply to the things we see. It can also be applied to the things we think we hear, like satanic messages when a particular song is played in reverse. Backward masking just really freaked people out in the 80s. And it might even be the root of why so many people think they see UFOs and ghosts. So
1: it sounds like this happens to
2: everyone. No one's
1: immune to this, not even uh, artificial intelligence. But why is it happening?
2: Well, it turns out humans are evolutionarily hardwired to find patterns where none exist, and there's some really good reasons why. Scientists say that the ability to recognize faces is one of the first things our brains learn to do, and they do it much faster than they recognize, say, a familiar everyday inanimate object. Now, this was really important, particularly in the early days of our hominid development, when we came out of the trees. We had to be able to tell the difference between, say, our family members, Make us a sandwich. We're hungry. and a predator. It's also really important to be able to read the faces of our fellow human beings and tell what mood they're in as instantaneously as possible, just in case, you know, we need to flee or we need to attack. So pareidolia doubtless saved the lives of many of our early ancestors. I mean, think about it. It's far better to think you see a lion hiding in the grass ahead of you and run away and live than to miss the lion and get eaten. Paradolia is exactly why things like the Rorschach inkblot test work. You know, those symmetrical black splashes that are intended to reveal how a person processes information. Tell me, what do you see in these black splatters? So Rorschach tests have fallen out of favor these days. They're far too subjective, but for decades they were all the rage. In fact, the U.S. government used them when evaluating the Nazis at Nuremberg. And this leads me to Dr. Douglas Kelly. Dr. Douglas Kelly. He's the subject of my second surf. Kelly is a fascinating guy. He grew up in San Francisco where he was a straight A student. He was an Eagle Scout. He goes to UC Berkeley, then UC San Francisco and finally Columbia where he earns multiple medical doctorates.
0: Attention, please.
2: He becomes a trained psychiatrist and in 1942 enlists in the army and goes to work treating World War II vets for shell shock. After the war ends, he's sent to Europe where he's tasked with leading a team of psychiatrists in evaluating the mental competency of 22 Nazi leaders awaiting trial for war crimes at Nuremberg. Nuremberg, Germany. His job is to make sure they're mentally fit to stand trial. Now we're talking about some of the worst of the worst Nazis. Men like Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy, and Hermann Göring, the commander of the Luftwaffe, the first head of the Gestapo, and once Hitler's designated successor. Kelly and his cohorts decide to get to the bottom of what made these men do such horrific things. They also want to know how others like them might be identified and stopped in the future. Kelly develops his pet project, a search for psychological traits common to all the prisoners, something he calls... The Nazi, personality. the Nazi personality, and one of his favorite ways to do that is the Rorschach inkblot test, an assessment he's championed his entire career. He spends a lot of time with the prisoners, and over the course of weeks worth of examinations, Kelly builds a close relationship with Goering, so much so that when his job is done and Kelly leaves Germany, he leaves with a letter from Goering stating, I regret your departure
1: from Nuremberg, as do the comrades confined with me. I thank you for your human behavior and also for your attempt to understand our reasons.
2: But here's the thing Kelly never does understand those reasons. Despite all the tests, all the examinations, all the time spent answering the prisoners, Kelly's overall conclusion is that the German leaders were perfectly sane. There is no telltale hint of any sort of aberrant behavior. Nothing he can point to and say, see here, this is why they did what they did. This is the Nazi personality. Even his Rorschach tests weren't helpful. In fact, several decades later, a double-blind study looked at those exact same Rorschach tests, and they couldn't differentiate between the scores of the Nazis and a group of Christian ministers who'd just been tested for the purpose of the study. This inability to identify the expected qualities of the Nazi mind really rattled Kelly, and it contributed to what would later be famously termed the banality of evil. In fact, about the only thing that set his Nazi subjects apart from everyone else were their IQ tests. They were each and every one of them above average intelligence, and several considerably so. Kelly returns to America haunted by this. He has to know more. So he switches fields to criminology. He becomes an expert in the use of psychiatry in law enforcement, and he serves as a consultant and a witness for the prosecution in a lot of high-profile murder cases. And even though he becomes an incredibly popular professor at the University of California at Berkeley, all the while the ghosts of Nuremberg plague him. According to his family, he becomes a rage-filled alcoholic and increasingly dark-tempered. He begins to ponder his own capacity for evil and becomes disillusioned with humanity. If anyone can understand how quiet insanity can hide inside brilliant and gifted men, it's Kelly. A New Year's Day, 1958, Kelly's cooking dinner for his wife and kids and his father, who he's just picked up so he can show off his brand-new color television. They're gonna watch the Rose Bowl. The previous night, He and his wife attended a New Year's Eve party where one of the guests said Kelly was his usual jovial self. But then something happens. Kelly burns himself on the stove, and for whatever reason, at that moment, everything changes. His family remembers that he flew into a rage and ran upstairs, and the next thing they know, he's in front of them, shouting and foaming at the mouth. In his hand, is a small vial with the remnants of a white, sugar-like powder. He's just ingested potassium cyanide. Kelly collapses at his family's feet, and he's dead 30 seconds later. He's just 45 years old. In October of 1946, just eight years earlier, mere hours before he was to be hung for his titanic crimes against humanity, Hermann Goering, ingested a potassium cyanide pill that had likely been smuggled in by one of his American guards. He kills himself and robs the Allies of that satisfaction. Some speculated that Kelly brought his cyanide pill back with him from Nuremberg. In his book about his experiences, 22 Cells at Nuremberg, Dr. Kelly had expressed an admiration for Goering for, quote, "...taking his own life at his own convenience and in a manner of his own choosing." It was, he said later, quote, a skillful, even brilliant finishing touch. Kelly was a man who spent his entire career examining the cracks and the breaking points in other people. But in the end, the one person he least understood, or perhaps understood all too well, was himself. That is is an incredible,
1: incredible story. But I've never heard of this guy before. Not once. I don't know how I've missed him.
2: That's I, I think that's one of my favorite things about this show is that every day I am learning something I didn't know before. And there's lots of things in life that you don't know, but not all of them are so compelling, so fascinating, so um, uh, disturbing.
1: I was going to ask if, if Dr. Kelly was somebody you had bumped into somewhere previously, like maybe in high school or I mean, where would you learn about
2: this guy in in high school psychology classes, maybe? I think, no, I've never heard of him before I started doing this. And I think that's exactly why um, I find this so compelling is because he kind of lives in a sort of a gray zone. He's a historical figure attached to even larger historical figures. But because, yeah, where would you learn about this? In history class, in in a class, in a college class on on psychology? Because it kind of falls into a little gray world, I think he's kind of fallen through the cracks. Hmm. There's a script in there somewhere I'm— I'm thinking I think you're right. I think I'm I think I'm right. So
1: let's swing back to where I left off in my surf. We were discussing statue vandalism. I went from Onyate's missing foot to this. So lots of other statues have been vandalized or defaced across time. In 1889, Chicago, a statue of a policeman was erected to memorialize officers lost during a bombing at a rally in Haymarket Square back in 1886, which itself was a retaliation of the police killing six people at a rally just the day before. Folks have tried to destroy this memorial police statue numerous times since its erection. People have defaced it, multiple attempts were made to simply blow it up, This forced the city to move it, and yet attempts to destroy the statue were still made, even decades later. Famously, four decades after it went up, someone took a streetcar, jumped the tracks, and rammed the statue at full speed. The statue was moved again, and people still tried to blow it up, in 1969 and again in 1970. Eighty years after it was dedicated, the statue was placed under 24-hour guard, It has moved several times since then, and is currently in the Central Police Headquarters in Chicago. Like, at what point do you decide, as a city, to just take the thing down? Has any other statue had such a bad run of luck, such as this? I don't know. I don't think so. A granite memorial in Ludlow, Colorado, had its heads decapitated and arms cut off in 2003 by unknown persons. The memorial has since been repaired. Various statues of Christopher Columbus in the New York area have been defaced, decapitated, splashed with red paint, and destroyed with sledgehammers. Um, but circling back to the Ludlow Memorial I just mentioned, I pulled up the wiki page on the Ludlow Massacre, to which the Ludlow Memorial was dedicated. This was a sad, sad event in which, like the Acoma Massacre, a lot of folks died. The divisions that led up to this massacre involved a mining company and its striking employees. Historian Howard Zinn describes the Ludlow Massacre
0: as "...the culminating act of perhaps the most violent struggle between corporate power and laboring men in American history." "...part of
1: a series of events called the Colorado Coalfield War." Something I had never heard of. In combing through this wiki page, I found that some of the grievances held by the laborers involve not having enough control over their lives inside the company towns. And company towns is what immediately piqued my interests. They are these little communities that are set up sometimes by big industry in order to provide for an efficient workforce. Places to live, libraries, schools, churches, stores, and shops. A company, usually in the business of extracting raw materials and usually benefiting from a monopoly, would build a company town in order to attract workers and maintain efficiency. I live in Birmingham, Alabama, and much of our history involves us being a colony of northern wealthy folks in the the 1880s. And there is a rich history of company towns here in that time period. Some company towns failed when the economy or the company failed. Others failed when there were strikes. These towns could fall apart socially during such times too. Residents sometimes chafed at the claustrophobic nature of it all. Think about it. These are places where there are no elections, no community involvement apart from what the company organizes. No other companies such as law firms or grocery stores. Just the one company, Big Brother, in a sense. There was a prevalent attitude in the U.S. before the 20th century that big companies had a responsibility to teach the working class how to be good middle class people. This is referred to as a kind of corporate paternalism, which was all the rage at the time. It seems kind of a terrible attitude until you consider the horrific living conditions among the working class before the 20th century. I mean, there was no minimum wage, no basic requirements for housing, no food stamps, no social safety net. This is the age before the advent of welfare capitalism. For many, the company town was a lifeline from a world of grinding poverty. And the company was a feudal lord ruling over its subjects, all but permanently bonded into servitude. Company towns started to diminish during the post-war years when the national economy began to increase society's fortunes. Cars were showing up everywhere and allowed for a kind of freedom that the working class had never experienced before. And with rising wages, they could drive to libraries and schools instead of relying on the company to provide them they could drive to other jobs as well. Working class Americans hadn't had these kinds of opportunities before. Additionally, some of the reforms in Roosevelt's New Deal helped to seal the fate of the company town, namely the raising of minimum wages and making housing more affordable to the working class. This is an interesting rabbit hole to go down. However, I started to wonder, do company towns still exist? And if so, what are they like in the 21st century? It turns out the answer is yes. Scotia, California was a company town right up until 2007 when the Pacific Lumber Company filed for bankruptcy. There are currently 800 people living there. The town is now making the transition away from its past as a company-owned community, a past that dates back to 1863, believe it or not. Various company towns still exist in Europe, in Japan, and in Africa, too. Orangemond, Namibia, which I'm certain I'm mispronouncing, is a company town based on a diamond mine and the De Beers Diamond Company. A famous recent company town was built by the Soviet Union to deal with a nuclear energy facility called Chernobyl. The town? Pripyat. Its failure is legendary. The Soviets built several of these atomic company towns, which is just wild, wild to think about. Atomic company towns. But it, uh, it begs the question for another time, maybe, but is it a company town when it's built by the state? Although a little older than Chernobyl, a famous failed company town was built by none other than Henry Ford, called Fordlandia. It was built deep in the Amazon rainforest in order to extract rubber directly for Ford's industrial purposes. It was built to house 10,000 people. But like most European and European-derived peoples when it comes to Amazonia, the whole thing fell apart spectacularly. The Amazon rainforest is not to be trifled with. So that was my journey. Statues missing foot. Uh, The contact period of the American Southwest led me to vandalized statues, which led me to the Ludlow Massacre and to company towns. And company towns led me here, the Amazon rainforest. I'm done, Uh, but let's check in with you and see where you left off.
2: Actually, before I do, I, you know what? Sometimes the things that really strike my interest in these kinds of stories are not like the large overarching thing. It's one of just the the small buried stories like that statue in, what was it, Chicago that kept getting knocked down and attacked after 80 years. Mm -hmm. Like who is still affected by that? Right. Like, no no one is alive who, who even knew who that person is. Like is there some sort of like secret society that passes down the, the, the we hate this statue society and we will do everything to destroy it? I mean it's just crazy. And if a statue is designed as a memorial to the public to remind them about a specific person or thing or event and that statue is now tucked inside of a police station, uh, what's the point?
1: <laughs> what is the point? But honestly, I mean, it's 2018 now. I don't know who's. I don't even know who would know what the statue is for, you know. Yeah. I'm not mad at any statue that old. Maybe. <laughs> and you live in Birmingham, Alabama, where
2: there are a couple of uh, controversial statues.
1: That's just that. I don't know. It's a cultural, political thing, and it's it's just really random where those kinds of simmering emotions take
2: people. Agreed. Well. For better or for worse, I'm going to stick with some controversial people. In fact, I'm going to stick with the Nazis just a little bit longer. Specifically, another Nazi who was tried at Nuremberg, Albert Speer. So Speer famously repented of his crimes and accepted moral responsibility, even as he said that he had no idea the Holocaust was taking place. Right. Still, Speer is a fascinating addition to this rogues gallery. While he was a card-carrying member of the Nazi party, he was not in the military or the SS. In fact, he's known as Hitler's architect.
1: Hitler's architect.
2: Kyle, have you seen Leni Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will?
1: Leni Riefenstahl, Triumph des Willens. I I have now, actually, and uh, I'm taken aback about how, how modern it feels.
2: Yes, it is a profoundly beautiful film. And because of that, I think all the more disturbing and insidious. For those of you who don't know, Triumph of the Will chronicles the 1934 Party Congress in where wait for it nuremberg of course which was attended by nearly a quarter of a million nazi supporters it's chock full of speeches by nazi leaders like hitler and then it's interspersed with footage of the gathered troops it's considered the greatest and most infamous propaganda film ever made not the least of which because riefenstahl who deserves an entire podcast all on her own uses constantly moving cameras, aerial photography, distorted perspective, and other cinemagraphic wizardry to sell Hitler's rise to power. As Kyle just alluded to, it is a gorgeous film about rank evil. All that to say this, Triumph of the Will was the most popular propaganda film covering Hitler's rallies at Nuremberg, but it wasn't the only propaganda film made there. The other is Festlich Nuremberg, I'm pretty sure. Like Kyle's apologizing for his bad Spanish, I'm going to apologize for my terrible German. Festliches Nürnberg. Festlich Nürnberg came out a year or so later after Triumph of the Will. And while it can't hold a candle to Riefenstahl's directing, the director of that film, Hans Weidmann, did have one thing Riefenstahl did not. The architect, Albert Speer. Speer used the ancient Greek Pergamon altar, which is amazing, by the way. If you ever go to Berlin, you have to see it. He used this as his inspiration. It was a massive sewn structure, more than 1,300 feet long and 78 feet high and he surrounded his altar with 130 anti-aircraft searchlights. These searchlights cast these giant massive towering beams of light almost five miles into the sky. It looked breathtaking on film and it was later copied by George Lucas for the end of Star Wars. Hitler loved Speer's work, and here's what I want to really talk about. This is the subject of my next surf. In 1937, Adolf Hitler gives Speer a monumental task, designing a brand new Berlin to be built as soon as they win the war. It is to be the seat of what Hitler presumes will be a thousand-year-long Reich. The city is to be called Germania. Germania. Just in case the world needed to be reminded of German superiority. And Speer is just the man to build it. Speer constructs this huge scale model of the city, and if you've never seen it, it is bonkers amazing. Please don't take what I'm about to say as adoration of or sympathy for the Nazis or their barbarity. They were a metastasized blight on history, and their monstrous actions deserve condemnation throughout all time. All I'm trying to get across here is, isolated from the events that inspired it, if such a thing is even possible... Speer's proposed city is a work of breathtaking scope and beauty. It is monumental architecture taken to a ludicrous level. So get this. Two huge new railway stations would serve as the primary arteries, bringing people into the city. And a three-mile-long, tree-lined street known as the Boulevard of Splendors would serve as the parade ground. It would be closed to traffic instead cars would be diverted into an underground highway running directly beneath the parade route the chancellery was to include a huge hall twice as long as the hall of mirrors in the palace of versailles germania was also going to boast the largest spectator stadium in the world the largest spectator stadium in the world right now is the May Day stadium in pyongyang north korea which has a footprint of 51 acres and a capacity to hold 150,000 people. Germania's stadium was going to hold 400,000, just 100,000 shy of half a million people. Speer designed two great buildings to dominate the Boulevard of Splendors. Toward the southern end of the Boulevard would be a triumphal arch higher than the Eiffel Tower, commemorating the eight million Germans who died in the First World War. Based on the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, This new arch was to be so large that the actual Arc de Triomphe could easily fit within its span, and if you've ever been to Paris, you know how big the Arc de Triomphe is, much less the Eiffel Tower. At the northern end of the avenue, four or so miles away, would stand the centerpiece of New Berlin, an enormous domed building called the Volkshall, or the People's Hall. It was designed by Hitler himself and based on the Roman pantheon. The Volkshall would be nearly 700 feet high and more than 800 feet in diameter. Now, I understand these are just numbers, so let me put it like this. The Volkshall would be 16 times larger than the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. None of this happened, of course. The tide of the war shifted. The Allies cut Berlin's throat. Hitler and many of his top aides committed suicide, and many others, like Speer and Göring, were captured and tried. Speer was sentenced to 20 years in prison for his role in the Third Reich. In Spandau prison, he devoted much of his time to writing, gardening, and daily exercise. In fact, get this, he carefully measured the prison yard and worked out how many steps it would take him to walk from Berlin to Berlin to Guadalajara, Mexico, via Russia, Asia, and the Americas, a trip of more than 15,000 miles. And to help him visualize the places he was traveling through during his prison itineration, he ordered photography-filled guidebooks from the prison library. When he was released in 1966, Speer abandoned all plans to return to architecture. He wrote three best-selling autobiographies, which he'd started in prison, detailing his relationship with Hitler and the years spent behind bars. And he anonymously donated up to 80% of his book's royalties to Jewish charities. And in 1981, while in London as a guest on a BBC news program, he suffered a stroke and died at the age of 76. Next to nothing remains of Speer's architectural works, they have been purged from history. The Nuremberg altar was raised and the area turned into a park. Nothing he designed and built for the Nazis remains standing in Berlin, except a single, large, concrete cylinder used as a feasibility study to gauge how much stress the bog-like ground of Berlin could tolerate in advance of the Boltshall Dome. It turns out the dome would have been impossible. The weighted cylinder sunk far more than would have been architecturally permissible. Ironically, the most significant example of Speer's work can be found in London, where he redesigned the interior of Carlton House Terrace, the German Embassy to the UK. I, I assume there are no Nazis in in Britain. Like maybe we've, we're moving past this topic. We are finally moving past the Nazis. Yes. In fact, Carlton House Terrace is no longer the UK's German Embassy. In fact, since 1967, the building has served as the offices of an organization whose motto is <clears throat> "Nelius and Verba." How's your Latin, Kyle? It's it's uh, it's atrocious. I actually know
1: that one. Uh, Nullus in verba means take nobody's word
2: for it. In other words, test everything. That's the motto of the Royal Society, right? Exactly right, the Royal Society. And that is my final wiki surf of the show. The Royal Society was formed in 1660 after a dozen men listened to an astronomy lecture by Christopher Wren, at the time only 28 years old, who'd later go on to become Sir Christopher Wren, one of the most critically acclaimed architects in history and the man responsible for rebuilding London after the Great Fire of 1666, including his masterpiece, St. Paul's Cathedral. Everyone enjoyed the talk so much that they decided to transform their scientific discussions into regular formal events. They even got the King of England, Charles II, to make it official. And thus, the oldest scientific institution in the world was born. They weren't just sitting around and talking about science. They were doing it, too. And from the very beginning, they insisted that everything would be carried out using careful, systematized experiments. Plus, they made it so that each of them had to check one another's work. So, yeah, the Royal Society literally invented peer review, one of the foundation stones of modern science. To date, there have been more than 8,000 elected fellows, and their names read like a who's who of the leading scientific lights of the past four centuries. Royal Society fellows uncovered penicillin and the first vaccine. They split the atom. They discovered hydrogen, the electron, and DNA. They invented the steam engine, the first computer, and the World Wide Web. You may have heard of some of them. Isaac Newton, who, among other things, formulated the laws of motion and universal gravitation and invented calculus. Charles Darwin, who, along with co-fellow Alfred Russell Wallace, established that all species on Earth have descended over time from a common ancestor. Michael Faraday, who invented the first electric motor, and along with co-fellow James Clerk Maxwell, opened the door on electromagnetism, and Humphrey Davy, the charismatic chemist who invented electrochemistry. More contemporary members include Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist who emphasized the gene as the driving force of evolution, David Attenborough, the naturalist and broadcaster, and the recently deceased Stephen Hawking, known for his groundbreaking work with black holes in relativity. They also admit foreign members, including Benjamin Franklin, famous for his kite experiment demonstrating the electrical nature of lightning, and of course, Albert Einstein, who developed the special and general theories of relativity. You know, Kyle, it struck me, going through all these stories, that history, when done right, when done impartially, is a lot like science. It doesn't discriminate. It records the deeds of both monsters and saints with equal obligation. It's going to forever remember the Nazis, who butchered millions and tried to take over the world, and the members of the Royal Society, who've improved the lives of billions and made the world a far better place to live in. And I suppose as long as people keep appealing to the better angels and the baser devils of our natures, Wikipedia's going to be there to cover it all.
1: Welcome to the credits, human.
2: Whenever you're ready.
0: Phrases in Nahuatl come from Omniglot.com. Omniglot is an encyclopedia of writing systems and languages. Use Omniglot to learn about over 260 different writing systems, 1,100 languages, and get tips on learning your next language.
1: Phrases from the Lushootseed Seed language come from seed.com where you learn all about the preeminent language of the Pacific
2: Northwest.
0: Phrases in Navajo come from navajowordoftheday.com. That's Navajo, N-A-V-A-J-O. NavajoWOTD.com NavajoWOTD.com can help you learn from the Navajo language by giving you something to think about as you go about your day.
1: Spanish translations and pronunciations by Lee Nocella.
0: German translations and pronunciations by Liam Atkinson. With additional sound design by Patrick Sullivan. An input from Stephanie Now ronalds
1: Additional voice work provided by Joseph Casper Baker III.
0: And by Samika Spratley.
1: See you next time.